0: Hey, good to see all of you here. Good to see all of you here. As you can see, the topic of discussion today of this Sunday School is going to be the wrath of God, the anger of God, and uh, just by way of introduction, before we begin to tread on this topic, uh, we need to know something of the justice of God. I think that once we gain a little bit more clarity with what we're talking about regarding the wrath of God, we must know what is the justice of God And um, so we see it being demonstrated, revealed on the stage of redemption. But what is it? And that's my question to you. What is the justice of God? How would you describe the justice of God? What's that? Uh, Perfection or his commandments. Okay. He's holy. The ju- yeah, if you can, that's an aspect, right, of the I mean, right. Of his judgments are. The scales. I think of a balance. It's okay. A balance. Yes, that's right. Righteous balance. What else? Yes. He will be feared. He will be feared? Fear, fear. Fair. Oh yes, yes, that's right. He's fair. He's fair. Yes. Very mm. good. There's
1: Greg. No, no, favoritism.
0: no favoritism. That's right. No he no impartiality. Amen. Right. Yes, Chris. Um, I think of whatever is right and just according to the nature of God. Mm. That's right. He judges according to his own nature. His own set standard of perfection. Let's go through a couple of verses. I'm just going to read these off to you. How would we define the justice of God? We see that Genesis 18.25 says that the God, God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth will do right, right? He will deal justly. The justice of God, it consists in this, that God repays everyone according to his or her works, um, treating the righteous one way and the wicked another way. God by no means holds the guilty to be innocent. We see that in Exodus 20 verse 7. Those who use the name of God in vain, he will by no means hold them guiltless, but they will be guilty. Uh, So he holds the guilty, he does not, uh, God by no means holds the guilty to be innocent. He does not spare the wicked. We see this in Ezekiel 7 uh, Ezekiel 7.4, we see this through that throughout that whole chapter, uh, that God will deal unsparingly. He will not spare with us according to our deeds, and he will make sure that the consequences of those deeds will be poured out upon us. That's what you see in Ezekiel. He does not regard persons. That's what we were just talking about. God does not take bribes. His judgment is impartial. Which means that it's not biased, right? His judgment is not biased. Um, it isn't influenced by something outside of himself. There isn't another standard that he judges by, right? Uh, such as maybe us, we might judge because we might deal with something more mercifully, who's a part of our family, versus someone we don't know, with, by appearances. With, like James says, whether they're rich or poor, you have them to sit in this chair or sit on the ground, right? Just depending on maybe what they're wearing, what their status is. Um, you'll see this. God's judgment is opposite man's judgment. He is righteous, and all his judgments are righteous, And not only this, but the punishment of the wicked is ascribed to the righteousness of God. It's because God is righteous that he punishes the wicked. It's because he's righteous. It's because God is righteous that he necessarily loves righteousness. right? His own character. God is for God. Uh, And it's because he is righteous that he necessarily hates sin. With an infinite hatred. God is righteous and he must react with judgment and condemnation and wrath against sin. And this is what you see. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 7. Someone reads Psalm 7. And Psalm 7 verse 11. And you can see the link between the righteous justice of God and His punishment. Yes, go ahead. Is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Amen. That's Psalm seven, verse eleven. And you see, because God is just, you see even that the 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 consequences of His justice are being borne out in His wrath and the verses following. If a man does not repent. He will sharpen his sword. You see that he has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows like fiery shafts because God is just. Because he's just. You see the same thing in in in, in, in Psalm 9, verse 4, speaks about, For you have maintained my just cause. You sit on the throne judging righteously. And it says, therefore, you rebuke the nations, you destroy the wicked. And so you see this pattern because God's just, he, he, he destroys, he, he, he deals justly with those who oppose or insult his sovereign rule and lordship. Yes.
1: Oh. Often we feel indignation every day. And we shouldn't doubt that God feels indignation every day. Imagine his indignation every day, you know. So,
0: Very good. I think it's comforting to know that God does not overlook like, the wickedness that we have to be, you know, exposed to. Mm. Very good. And so the truth about God's justice, it reminds us that everyone here has broken the law of God. You've done that which God hates. You'll have to answer for the way that you chose to live, right? That's the, the truth about God's justice. It reminds us of this. The same truth is, is echoed again in Paul, Second Corinthians five eleven. for we must all uh, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, meaning for this purpose, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So the justice of God helps us to understand how he deals with men, whether good or bad. And so understanding the wrath of God, how, how can we understand this wrath of God? God is righteous, he's just in his, in his being, in, in his essence. And from those attributes flow the wrath or anger of God. Uh, the wrath of God is sort of a secondary attribute or it may be described as a byproduct of the justice of God, right? So where God is love from all eternity, he is not wrath from all eternity, right? He is, it's the justice of God against sin that demands, follow the logic, it's the the justice of God against sin that demands the anger of God. And nothing from within him demands that anger. So God is not wrathful right, from all eternity where there is no sin. So only something from outside of God can provoke his anger because nothing inside of him can, right? Something from outside of his In eternity past, nothing opposed God or transgressed his righteous standard of holiness and blessedness, right? The answer to why isn't God righteously angry from all eternity is where there is no sin, there is no wrath, or there is no wrath being exercised, uh, where sin is not present. For the anger of God to be active in eternity past, the anger must have had an object that it hates. So if God is alone, the wrath of God does not have an object of intense hatred, and therefore it is not eternally an active attribute of God. That baby sounds like it's in distress. Um. So if God is angry with me, it's not because God is wrath, essentially, but it's because I am a sinner and I am sinful. The anger of God is, is a reaction to sin and opposition. But if he loves me, it is because God is love. It's because he is love. Does that make sense? So the wrath of God operates more functional. It's more of a functional attribute, a more relational attribute, if that helps. It's demonstrated and revealed as Romans 118 sells us from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's where we see this attribute being exercised. That's where we see this attribute being revealed. So the wrath of God or the anger of God is the justice of God exercising itself against everything which does not conform to the moral perfections of God. Does that make sense? Have any thoughts about that? The abiding wrath of God? So question... <clears throat> would a God, some feedback from you, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good <clears throat> be a good God? He wouldn't, right? Because he would still be taking pleasure in evil. It would, it, and evil is not good, it is contrary to the nature of God. Would a God who did not react adversely, right, to evil, In his world, would he be morally perfect? He couldn't be morally perfect. Why not? Why is it a good thing that God reacts adversely to evil in his world? Because he was just. it, It would distort his justice. He's the standard. He would have to deny himself, right? It may show that God is tolerate. He tolerates some sin, right? That he does have some looseness, some lax. It within his holy standard of perfection, that maybe he's indifferent, right? So some of the crimes of men may just go unchecked. He wouldn't be just, right? It would distort, it would pervert justice. But the Bible reveals that it's, it's not if you sin a thousand times. It's not if you sin a hundred times. You know, three strikes, you're out. But the language of the tolerance of God for sin is the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. God has a zero tolerance for sin. I think it also
2: speaks to, you know, we've heard it before, you know, God is just capricious with his judgments. Right. And I think that when we actually look at the evidence shown to us from his word, it's the very opposite. They just don't like the fact that it's mm. so exact, that it's so perfect because it speaks against every living human being that has ever been or ever will be.
0: That's right. It is. It accuses you. It accuses all people of falling short of the glory of God. It says that we have all sinned. Yes. So, we were reading,
2: Towards the end, on the very last verse, 16, uh, it ends off, To fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Mm. And we wondered, I mean, is that, should, as Christians, should we desire the wrath of God to come upon people? I, I mean, is that a, I don't know if that's a proper, you know, but I, 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 yeah. I, I wondered about that.
0: So the good, yeah, good <laughs> question. Good, good question. Um, what do you all think? What do you think? What are your? What would you I, I respond? Think if, I think that it's proper to have a
2: balanced view of it, right? We see in Precatory Psalms that surely are looking to um, have God defeat
0: the enemy uh, mm. in a certain context. But I think overall,
2: it's for the good of those who are called according to God's purposes that we ought to pray for the souls of those who are uh, at enmity with God and with us. But at the same time, it's totally okay to, to, in, in, in my view, from how I read Scripture, to see to, to see that God would, in fact. Defeat an enemy of yours, uh, but uh, you're not having a double-mindedness in that in that instance. In my opinion, what, I, what I'm seeing is you certainly would prefer the the mercy of
0: God upon an enemy. However, if the only way to
2: defeat them is to oppose them in such a in such a manner,
0: then so be it.
2: Mm. Yeah,
0: imprecation is pretty controversial. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that.
1: Number one, you know, I think under the new covenant, we are no longer the direct agent of the wrath of God. Justice. Right? Like David, who could take a sword, if I mean, and execute someone through the wrath of God, that, that he would become Israel's theocracy with the direct agent of God's wrath.
0: Right. What we see now, I think, is more of, like, a are
1: more of like a deferring to the wrath of God in the prayers of the church, That's right? Uh, As somebody said, you know, every time you pray for the Lord to return, in a sense, in the sense of, you know, uh, you know, Lord, you know, send a terrorist to bomb that mosque, the street, or something like that. You know, never, we don't will that kind of evil or upon our people or upon people in sure. any way. You know, so I think now the wrath of God is more of like, a, you know, a, a warning, you know, you for, you know? But, and, and it's also an eschatological, general uh, desire, a good desire of yeah. the church. Vindicated And her enemies Destroyed that's Right I mean, There is a place For that <coughs> Right Which you know Would pretty much Empty out Your whole church If the church Is <laughs> <laughs> true that's Amen That's basically What Paul's saying In Romans 12 19 Yeah Never take your own Again Amen Right Beloved But we For the wrath Of that's God That's right Amen Ma'am. And I think, I think Lenin, when we want to take it upon ourselves because we don't really believe that God sees. not are really right? more we you
0: know I mean? we think that like our impatient get it done right now <laughs> is right is just and not the delay exactly. of this yes brother I think that's the example we have. No, echo
1: what he said, because that came up at the men's study. Mm. And it's almost like your family members, your own parents. like on this side, you need to be dragging them, holding, holding on to their feet, and begging them to repent. Because on the other side, you will be rejoicing in their, their
0: punishment. That's right. Amen. Amen. Yes. In the,
2: in the book of Revelation, it talks about uh,
0: the martyrs. That's the, right. The, the Oh, huh. That's right. Until yeah. we're vindicated. Yeah, that's right. <coughs> Next uh, question. How, in what way, how could we be imitators of the wrath of God? Right? How could we imitate God's anger? Right? How could we imitate it positively? Right? And what are ways that would be wrong to be imitators of God's anger or wrath? True. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I just think love of God, God, love God loves, hate what God hates. Right? I'm thinking we should be we should hate sin and everything that opposes the works of God. We should we should it would be wrong to be imitators like we're saying to be revengeful, to not leave vengeance to God ultimately eschatologically, but to take matters into her own hands, would be would be wrong. So hardly, as we know, hardly anyone likes to preach about the wrath of God, uh, likes to preach about the anger of God. Why do you think we must preach about the wrath of God? Why must we do that? Because uh, we're, we're commanded to preach the whole counsel of God, and that's included in mm. sure it's very necessary to make sense of the gospel Somebody else Christ the example, amen amen he that's, that's right that's right I would say that we cannot even as we cannot understand uh, the Old Testament without the New or the New Testament without the Old so we cannot understand the gospel of God without the wrath of God amen. you cannot understand it um, how will we understand the good news without the what, the bad news? Right. This is this is this is very. Uh, it's such a, an intimate component of the message that we share um, with the lost, and so in certain, it's most certainly necessary for us to preach these things that we understand the glorious contents of the wrath of God, because we can't just say that Jesus died. When we say Jesus died, we're talking about the wrath of God. We're talking about the wrath of God, that he died for our sins. We're talking about the wrath of God. And if we need to understand these things ourselves, I, just, I've been just, I shared it even in the men's study, we need to understand the portrait of Christ that the scriptures paint of him, who he is, his person, and his work, and what he did. And it's that picture we go and we share with other people. It's that portrait that the scripture gives us. We tell people, put your faith in this and the person and work of Christ. Trust him. God is holy. right? Some may say that, that they don't like a God who is wrathful or is going to punish us for our sins. But if you know that God is holy, your greater struggle will be That you couldn't believe in a God who wouldn't punish you for your sins if God is holy. If you know that, right? Uh, Our issue isn't why would God send people to hell? You should be able to wrap your mind around that. I understand. I know why God is going to send people to hell. What we don't understand is why God is allowing the holy God of the universe allowing anyone into heaven. Why he's allowing anyone to dwell with him. For all of eternity. That that should be what truly dissolves the mind and to just, right? How can God be merciful to sinners? How can he show his kindness to those who hate him? And I would say it's because God is wrathful. It's because God is wrathful that he can be kind to sinners. Salvation exists because God is wrathful. It's because the wrath of God was satisfied, right? The greatest expression of the love of God toward you was when the father sent his son to die as your substitute and suffer your wrath, right? To suffer your wrath. And by imputation, not by nature, but by imputation, even as Mark Jones says, he was treated as if he was the greatest sinner to ever exist by imputation, He became sin. The Son of God became sin. Right? So, salvation exists because God is wrathful. And if it wasn't for the wrath of God um, upon Christ, you would not be experiencing this salvation. Right? You want to see how serious God is with sin? You look to Christ, you look to the cross. see how serious God takes his law, you look at the cross. Stephen Charnock says, Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the groans of the damned creatures, give such a demonstration of God's hatred as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time when our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. Leon Morris says this, unless we we give real content to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men really do deserve the anger and wrath of God, we empty God's forgiveness. We empty the meaning of God's forgiveness. If we, don't under, if, we don't, if we don't teach, if we don't apply the understanding and this doctrine of the wrath of God, if we don't allow people to understand it, they won't be able to understand this forgiveness. We can think of forgiveness as something real only when we hold that sin has betrayed us into a situation. And he says that we deserve to have God inflict upon us The most serious consequences. He says, and it is upon that situation that God's grace supervenes. It's upon that situation when you know that you, you have disobeyed God. You have broken his law. And when the grace of God supervenes, you begin to understand. You begin to be thankful for forgiveness. You begin to look at the cross and weep because you're thankful, you're grateful that God supplied a plan to save you from the wrath of God. What about definitions? Just like the wrath of God in Scripture, uh, if I could just give you a definition of wrath, some some of you just kind of maybe have this, but if I could put words to wrath, wrath is, is, is really, can be really defined in Scripture as deep, intense anger and indignation, a heating up, right, Burning with fire, burning with fury is what we see wrath being uh, defined in Scripture. And indignation it can be defined as righteous anger as it's exercised by God. Righteous anger aroused by injustice and immorality. And same with anger. If you could define it, it's a stirring of resentful displeasure. Strong antagonism, which means hostility. Hatred, enmity, by a sense of injury or by a sense of insult. Um, Turn with me to Exodus 32. You're going to run out of time. And you see the wickedness of God's people in Exodus 32. Right? there are many words for wrath, for anger, but we see a clear example of the demonstration of God's anger right here against idolatry and the severity of that sin as it provokes the jealousy, the righteous jealousy of Almighty God. And Moses here he going he, he went up to, he went up to the Mount of Sinai, in Exodus 24. To meet with God, forty days and forty nights. He was gone for quite a while. Um, and you see that he went up he, to get the instructions for the tabernacle, to get the Ten Commandments, come back down with the the to uh, come back down with those tablets. Exodus thirty-two verse one says this: Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, he was up there for a month and ten days by our calendar. When they saw the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, "'Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, "'Tear off the gold rings in our, uh, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me.'" Then all the people tore off their gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it, in, it, uh, fashioned it with a, a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You think God is incensed because they're crediting the work of God to an idol. And he, he goes on, he says this, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be the feast, a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, "'Go down at once for your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and ascribed to it and said, "'This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt.' And the Lord said to Moses, "'I have seen this people.'" And behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone. Get away from me, Moses, that my anger may burn against them. The anger of God is melting. It is heating up. It is at its tipping point. And God says, get away from me, Moses. I, my anger is about to be poured out. It's about to burn against this people for idolatry. For idolatry. That God was willing to commit almost genocide. This is what he says. And and he says, get away. He says that my anger may burn from them and that I destroy them and I start all over. That I will make you, of you, a great nation. And then Moses begins to pray and he pleads the covenantal promises of God and he saves the people. Praise God. Yes. Yes. Good. Is he will accomplish his purposes. Right. That's right. That's right. That's good. That's a good book, by the way. Salvation through judgment. Yeah. That was a plug. Yeah. So you see the same thing with the sons of Korah. Uh, you can go to even, it's just number 16. And I'm not really going to read too much of it. I want to make sure I get through this. But they, they rise up and they're contending with Moses. And ultimately, they, they says that they're contending, contending against Moses and the Lord. That the way, in which the, they, the way in which Moses was leading them was wrong. They disagreed. They didn't like it. They wanted to go their own way. And God was so incensed. That he points out these men. I'm in, I'm in number 16, verse 21, where the Lord set, spoke to Moses because these people had assembled the people of God against the Lord and against Moses. He says, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them. Instantly and it says this, just going back down, literally, speak to the gone congregation and say, Get back, get back. It's as if it's like he's he's he says, Remove yourselves from the dwelling places of the sons of Korah of of, uh, of Abiram and Datham. He says, Get back because God is about to rip the ground out from underneath him and swallow them alive. That God is absolutely not even playing. He was angry. He was incensed. He was, his wrath was kindled. You read in the book of Nahum. It's a very small book. It's between Micah and Habakkuk. For some of you, that might be a little difficult, maybe for all of us, finding that little book. It's only a couple of chapters but in, in, but, in, but in the book of Nahum, it says a jealous, verse 2 says a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. and The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Go down to verse 6. He says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken out or the, the rocks are broken up by him. It says the Lord is good. He says a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge of him but an overflowing flood. He will make a complete end of its sight and that's talking about Nineveh historically and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The wrath of God stemming from the justice of God, will absolutely hit its mark. He, will, The wrath of God, God's justice will be vindicated in the misery of sinners. And we see, that's just seeing just a, a past demonstration of the wrath of God being revealed to the people of God and to those outside of the nation of Israel the present. Go to John three thirty six. That's where we'll be next, right? We see the wrath of God in the past and His dealings with man, and here in John three thirty six, you can see what is most certainly true of each and every person who is under the wrath of God. This is the abiding wrath of God. Someone read John three thirty six. Okay.
2: He who believes. In has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides
0: on him. It abides on him. That Greek word used is minnow, which just means that the wrath of God, it remains. It abides. It stays. It's as if the unrepentant man or woman, they're always walking in a realm of wrath. Wherever they go, the wrath of God is over them. It's like this cloud of wrath. As if they're in a realm of wrath, right? As surely as this roof hangs over you, does the wrath of God abide on the wicked, right? As surely as the sky covers humanity, does the wrath of God cover sinners, right? As the Spirit of God abides with the saint, so the wrath of God abides over the sinner. Thomas Boston, he says, "O oh, miserable soul. If you flee not from this wrath unto Jesus Christ, though your misery had a beginning, yet it will never have an end. Should devouring death wholly swallow you up and, for, and forever hold you fast in the grave, it would be kind. That would be kind. He says, But your body must be re- reunited to your immortal soul and live again and never die that you may be ever dying in the hands of an ever-living God. Death will quench the flame of man's wrath against us, but God's wrath, when it has come upon the sinner for millions of ages, it will still be the wrath to come. The sinner in hell still faces the wrath to come. It's not the wrath, right, that's just presently that they are perishing in, but it's always the wrath to come for all of eternity. I've got a little bit more time. Look at the wrath of God in the future, and this is more eschatological. And I would just, this should be a time of examination. You should you, you should be examining yourself, and where are your sins? Um, as Romans says that, Really, if you are not alive to God, then you are dead in your sins. If you are dead in your sins, then the wrath of God most surely abides over you. It's being demonstrated in your life. J.C. Ryle asked this question for each of us to answer. Where are your sins? He proceeds with either your sins are upon yourself, unpardoned, unforgiven, uncleansed, unwashed away, sinking you daily nearer to hell or else... Your sins are upon Christ, taken away, forgiven, pardoned, and blotted out, cleansed away by Christ's precious blood. Where are your sins? Where are your sins? And my dear brothers and sisters, do not sacrifice your assurance of salvation by muddling in sin um, or lose your soul by coming short of the grace of God um, or receiving the grace of God in vain. Joseph Joseph Allain he wrote a book, uh, An Alarm to the Unconverted. He says, speaking about the effects of displeasing God as a saint, it's terrible. I've sinned against God. I felt the effects of dis- displeasing God. And he says, some of the choicest servants of God When under the hiding of his face and dreading the effects of his displeasure have bewailed their condition with bitter lamentations. But then he turns his face and his focus from the saints to the impenitent sinner and he asks, How then will you endure when God shall pour out all of the vials of his wrath and set himself against you to torment you. And he shall make your conscience a tunnel by which he will be pouring his burning wrath into your soul forever. That he will use your conscience itself to pour his wrath into your soul. And I'm not, the topic of God's wrath is, I could have gone many different ways with this. I, talk, I could have gone more systematically versus devotionally. I could have gone in another way. That, um, But it's so needful that we be brutally honest with the wrath of God, that I be straightforward with you. And not to get a rise out of you, right? Not for you to look up to me and think that I've reached or that I've reached some sort of perfection by teaching this to you. I need to be sitting down in this seat. I need to be fearing God. I need to be considering the wrath of God with you. And so we are. Um, but the eschatological wrath of God will be absolutely terrible and uh, that should concern you. Um, Think about the future of wrath to come. To be caught in a hurricane. Have you seen it on TV? Have you seen what a hurricane looks like on TV? People die. People die in that hurricane or tornado, whatever it might be. You have the horizontal rains just racing across the scene. The, 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 the winds are screaming. the winds are just howling at such an incredible speed, throwing and damaging whatever's in its path, absolutely devoting to destruction, whatever it's in its path. But to be caught in the storm of God's wrath with his power mounted up against you like a cannon, should make you shudder just thinking about it. Right? There's no place of refuge. Do you get that? There may be a place of refuge in a flood here. There's no place of refuge in the eye of God's wrath. There's no place to flee to. There is no grace. Mercy is cut out forever. Right? You don't want to be Around when those waves come. You don't want to be staring down the barrel of God's torturous wrath and omnipotent anger. You remember Christ, he looked down that barrel. Christ looked down that barrel and the very thought of it seized him with fear. The very thought of it overwhelmed him with grief. In the garden, that very meditation made him sweat great. Drops of blood. And many sinners will be in the eye of this storm forever as their everlasting habitation. We should be telling sinners about this that when they die, death is absolutely final, hell is real, and eternity is forever. You should include that in your message. You should include that in your message. You should, you should remind them about what the wrath of God consists of, that once their body collapses and God stops sustaining their life, their grave will swallow them up, and there's no coming back from that. I was just weeping over my grandma this last year. She's just diagnosed with cancer. Her heart is hard. She's a Catholic. Says that God loves her, though she never reads her Bible, has always lived very sinfully. Just weeping over her. Grandma. Grandma, the grave is about to swallow you, and when you go into that grave, there is no coming back. There's no turning around. There is no second chances after you die. There's no more appeals to the mercy and grace of God. The wrath of God is is unavoidable. It's inevitable for those who do not repent. It's unavoidable. They will be experienced. The piercing fire and will be constantly, perpetually cooking their conscience for all eternity. Some of you might feel like anxieties, but you don't know anxiety. You don't know anxiety. Like the wrath of God, even as Jesus tells it, that way he talked more about the wrath of God than he did the love of God. I'm sure you know that. But he said that in that place, Their eyes will never stop weeping, and the divine displeasure will be so weighty upon them. It says that they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Do you get that? That they're weeping under the pressure of the displeasure and pain of hell, that they're grinding their teeth under the torments of hell for all of eternity. That they're in that place of destruction. There is no mercy. There's no relief to that punishment. It's everlasting, Jesus tells us. The wrath of God is absolutely everlasting. Thus will God, in this way, will God's justice be vindicated in the eternal misery of sinners. And let me try to wrap up just even another point still and this is the beauty of the cross and this is how god's justice was vindicated and satisfied in the sin bearing Wrath absorbing death of Christ. You begin to be like a little excited about the, the death of Christ now, right? When you see the wrath of God and, and and the justice of God being satisfied in the death of his son, you begin to, at least your hope should be lifted. When you see the grace of God being revealed and that Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for all men. When you see the grace of God being revealed, I'm sure you've seen, you've heard this this. Analogy. Imagine that you're standing in front of a dam full of water, 10,000 miles high by 10,000 miles wide, full of water, and you're a hundred feet from it, and God is he, he he is at his tipping point and God tears down that dam and the water is coming, rushing at you. And right before it gets to you, the ground opens up and drinks up this wrath, drinks up the flood of water. And so did Christ satisfy the wrath of God, satisfies the wrath. You need to put your faith in this Christ. He can deliver you from the wrath to come. I don't have enough time. Nobody will listen to me long enough. <sighs> it's, it's so really <sighs> Lastly, I'll just end with this. Redemption was not accomplished by the crowning of gold or in the light of the transfiguration. No, Jesus in the transfiguration, he told you about how he was going to die, that he was going to depart from this world, right? It didn't end by Jesus being crowned and being seated on his throne but redemption was accomplished in the darkness of separation from the father the crowning of flesh-tearing thorns while being nailed to a tree being the lord jesus was suspended on a piece of wood the, the the greatest demonstration of the love of god men crucified they threw it on a rugged piece of wood a bloody piece of wood and pierced him they Stapled his skin and his body to this piece of wood. The greatest demonstration of the love of God. And there he was crushed. There he was crushed by the Father. The Son was abandoned so that you could be embraced. It's the only way you would be embraced if the Lord Jesus was in fact abandoned that he was deserted on the cross so that you might be reconciled. You remember he cried out, my God, my God, I believe with great tears because he's never experienced such forsakenness before. And it wasn't because he was being filled with divine love, but because he was being filled with divine wrath because the father has separated him because by the very willingness of the Lord Jesus Christ, he became something that God hated. He became sin. And so we should adore this Jesus, our brave Savior, who satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of those who repent and put their faith in him. So let's consider that today as we go into worship, as we take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Amen.